Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. To this week's episode of the Prestige, a podcast about film made for film lovers by film lovers. Each week we look at a different film and we give it a bit of a review and then talk about some themes and ideas that that film throws up. And we're currently in our fourth season and we're looking at various genres, having looked at directors and franchises before. And after focusing on the film of the week, we talk about some recommendations based on that film, going off actors or directors involved in the film. And we always start with our recommendations for what else are you even watching? So, Rob, what else have you been watching this week? As we're getting towards the end of the year, I'm trying to do my catch-up on the movies that I've missed this year. Um, just sort of like to see the year off well, not having too much hanging over me. So I, in the last week, have caught up with the film from this year, the uh, drama film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. This is a directorial debut from Joe Talbot and an acting debut um, from Jimmy Falls, who plays the main character. It is essentially about an African-American man in San Francisco who is working to try and reclaim the his childhood home, a Victorian house that his grandfather built in the now very gentrified, very um, suburban area of San Francisco. It, it deals with issues around identification, around the black experience in America, about the changing face of San Francisco, and about personal mythologies and stories we create for ourselves and about each other. Jimmy Fails, who is in many ways inspiration and writer and producer and actor, whilst he isn't the most impactful of actors in the world, he holds the screen, he has a great charisma, and you can tell this story means something to him personally. There's amazing support from Jonathan Mazenet, who plays the best friend. He is outstanding, and the film echoes movies like Sorry to Bother You and that kind of blind spotting from last year that take this principle and do something with it and make an interesting story and rather than just being the more traditional shall we say kitchen sink-esque drama about these things it has interesting visual things to say as well and do the, the, the sort of the, the presentation of the story is interesting as well as the story itself um i don't know if it's available or where it's available out in the uk currently but if you get a chance to see it um, I would heartily recommend The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Well, what about you, Sam? This week I've been catching up on something that I missed when it came out, um, and it's been winking at me from Netflix. You might like the list that they suggest every now and then. And I thought a couple of nights ago I settled down and watch an episode of Hannibal, the TV series which is based on... Um, three of the four Thomas Harris novels about Hannibal Lecter, although not The Silence of the Lambs. Um, and it talks about the relationship Hannibal Lecter and a, another psychologist played by Hugh Dancy. 
Mads Mikkelsen as Hans Lecter is very good. It's conceivably worth watching just for Mads Mikkelsen, although some of the other actors are very good. I found myself a little bit irritated by Hugh Dancy's character, so I'm not sure I will continue with it. But it, Mads Mikkelsen, as always, eminently watchable. So it, I don't regret watching an episode of it, and I may well watch more of it in the future. It's uh, it's not one that I've watched myself, but people do. Uh, people who who love that show do rave about that show, and I've seen a lot of people sort of uh, mm. waxing lyrical about it. As Sam said, we are taking a movie a week currently and we are currently in our fourth season and within that fourth season we are about we're a few episodes into our third mini season we've looked at uh, martial arts movies we have looked at vampire films and we are now looking at the high school movie this week we are looking at in many ways another sort of titan of the genre the 1993 film dazed and confused this country is founded by people who were in the aliens, man. George Washington, man, he was in a cult. And the cult was in the aliens, man. You didn't know that? No. Oh, man, they were way into that type of stuff, man. It was the last day of school. Uh, Miss Crawford, I was thinking that maybe you and I can get together over the summer. I mean, it'll be legal. I mean, it can make It was the first day of summer vacation. You guys know anything about a party here tonight? No, sir. It was a time they will never forget. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I thought he was cute. Oh, that's just you thought he was cute? Do you realize when he graduated, we were like three years old? If only they could remember it. Okay. So you're not going to go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. You going to be quarterback next year? I don't know. I might not even play. of a serious attitude adjustment, young man. Super dominant male in a 50s greaser uniform. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> the 50s were boring. The 60s rocked. The 70s, oh my God, they obviously suck. Dazed and confused. See it with a bud. Behind every good man, there's a woman. And that woman was Martha Washington, man. And every day George would come home, she'd have a big, fat bowl waiting for him, man, when he'd come to the door, man. She was a hip, a hip, hip lady, man. Days Confused is a film from Richard Linklater, who we talked about previously when we did the Before trilogy. It is the tale of one afternoon into night into morning in a small town in Texas and about the different... Kids who uh, we interact with and the different cliques and the film has a very floating quality, I suppose, in that we dip in and out of narrative and sort of you get the weave of different characters that interact with each other. Uh, you can see echoes of Lickness' early work, things like Slacker, which are very much that kind of freeform, narrativeless, or plotless, plotless narrative, shall we say. Um, and this takes that. Um, adds a bit more plot, but it's still very loose and baggy. It has, in its main characters, it's got uh, Jason London and a lot of very early talent, shall we say, people who went on to be 
big household names like Ben Affleck, like Parker Posey, like Adam Goldberg, like Jerry Lon Adams, like Matthew McConaughey, like uh, Rory Cochrane. These actors who went on to be much bigger. It's very much that kind of movie that captures them at the start of their careers. Now, I have watched this film many times and have been a big fan of it for a long time, which is not going to be a surprise. Sam, what is your history of this film? I have never seen this film before watching it for this episode. Rob, you have known me for working out together just over a quarter of a century. Yes. And we've been watching films together on this podcast for four years, five years. Um, so, four years. What do you think? How do you think I felt about it? I honestly don't know. Um, because we have touched on movies similar to this in the past, things like uh, The Myth of Mental Paper, which you weren't a big fan of. Um, and it, this film can be a bit, I suppose, loose. And sometimes I find you really enjoy that, things like the Before Trilogy. Um, sometimes you don't, and you like a more of a, a focused story. I'm going to come down on the fact that you liked it, on the basis that I think it's a brilliant film, and I think you have good taste. But I will <laughs> warn you, if that isn't the case, my wife may never speak to you again. The floor is yeah, yours. Well. <laughs> uh, it's alright we're not sending Christmas cards this year anyway <laughs> sorry sir I was not a huge fan um, I can see what Linklater is doing and I like you said I, I've enjoyed many other films by him I really enjoyed the before series for example um, but I just wanted this to say more and also I don't I feel there are some high school films like we when we looked at Dead Post 30 or Breakfast Club that they feel like they say more than about the high school experience and this one feels very much rooted in the high school experience mm-hmm and I feel like I enjoy something like The Breakfast Club because it talks about much more than that. It talks about, I don't know, being ostracised or it, it, it can talk about... So it, the post-society can talk about how we engage with art or it can, it can say so much more than just the lives of those 17-year-old boys in the classroom. And it feels like this... I'm sorry to say this film for me didn't say, didn't feel like it said enough about something other than the high school experience. It was a brilliant snapshot of that, but I just felt like I didn't want to relive that. I can see what you're saying, although I I vehemently disagree with it. Um, Okay. I think that one of the reasons why I like this film so much and why I have advocated for films like this previously is, I suppose, is the element of realism and the element of of maybe nostalgia, certainly. But I look at things, and I was I really love Breakfast Club and I really love Dead Poets Society, they happen in a very unreal world. You know, mm. Breakfast Club, yes, it's brilliant. It captures all the ideas, all problems about you know social hierarchy, but at the same time, that kind of isn't true. The very nature of friendships and very nature of school means that you have this fluidity of friendships 
the people move between groups, that the people I at school hung out with in maths was very different to those I hung out with in drama, and very different to people I hung out with doing, you know, bottom sets um, rugby. And someone who is happen to be good at sport, but also good at math, is going to have to move between these sort of social circles. And I think that this film, for me particularly, is one of the ones that captures that. That actually high school isn't what they say in Mean Girls, where no one sits at that table and all of that. And yes, there are certainly groups inside schools, and there are certainly the cool kids and the not cool kids, but it is not as hyper-real and hyper-focused as it appears in the movies. And this gives that real feeling of what it's like to be a teenager, where you have friends of different sorts and you talk stuff with them all night and you hang out. And like this to me is evocative of that feeling of teenage years of that feeling of something changing. And you know, this film is about this one night where everything changes. Kids move up from junior high to high school and they kind of, it's that coming of ageness in that they, it's about their journey from being these kids that they are at the start to still kids but the older kids they are at the end and going through the tribulations of meeting a girl and getting into a fight and going cruising with your friends and that kind of teenage moments that are stuck in time and yes it is loose and yes it is baggy and yes it lacks a cohesive narrative and a post-traditional hero's arc but i think as we talked about previously Teenage films don't have that, you know. Teen- teenage lives aren't that kind of... No, no, we aren't the heroes in our teenage years. We have these flash memories. I don't know about you, Sam, but I know from my school memories, which you're a lot of them, they aren't cohesive. They aren't a A, then B, then C, then D narrative I can tell. They are flashes of this party or hanging out in Pizza Hut or going for a walk with my friends or sitting in our form room. And they don't sit in a place and time. They don't sit in a clear-cut narrative of this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. And so to me, this film evokes that feeling of nostalgia of looking back at a teenage life and about the idea of these little moments and i like this fact the film has odd scenes where three cats who we like just talk about stuff for a little bit and then it cuts away again and i know in the past i have hard advocated for this kind of slow cinema and this kind of as i said baggy cinema but i think this one is it's for me it means it's that perfect distillation of the dreamlike quality of teenage memories. I can feel like we're falling into a predictable passion pattern of Rob gets passionate about films, Sam decides he actually thinks it's all right. <laughs> I am an excellent <laughs> convincer. Um, yes. I mean, before we, I mean, I don't want to get too mired into sort of our own opinions of the movie, but I think the film is also doing some, like, I think there's a lot. Uh, at work in this film and i did want to talk a little bit about gender norms um and this film and how it does some things with gender norms um positive and negative in them and i think that's mostly about the early hazing scenes shall we say you see this this i think may be why this film lost me just i just can't get on board with the hazing because it's bullying and I totally agree with Tony when he's talking about how ridiculous it is and the this sort of community sanctioned element of it. Is it Tony you're 
Alan Goldberg's character. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 one of the, it's in their conversation, and I think I agree, and I think the film agrees. Yeah, um, I think. I mean, this is the um, these are my notes. I was making as watching it is that the. The, the the hazing takes two forms, the male and female forms, and they are installing and reinforcing accepted gender norms. The male hazing is violence. It's about establishing a dominance, it's about an alpha maleness, and about basically physical violence. Whereas the female hazing is about submission, about kneeling and sexualizing characters, and it's that weird dichotomy of they kind of infantilize the girls but also sexualize them um in in many ways and the f- it feels like the film's kind of going like this is the this is the veneer this is the veneer of life in that you have these traditional gender roles and you got the older kids passing that down and that kind of internalized uh sorry, misogyny and internalized patriarchy they're passing on to their their own gender down the time but over the film I think it breaks that down, and it does. I mean, like you've got the, the Parker Posey character, you've got the Ben Affleck character, who are who are unremitting, unrelenting dickheads. Although, having said that, I think one of my favourite scenes in the film is where Ben Affleck does not get his way and just goes mental after what they've done to him. Mm. And I, I think I loved his screaming and smashing the bat and then driving off. But I think that's where you got to look at the film as a like. Like the first bit is uncomfortable, especially looking at back from two thousand nineteen eyes to this. Like it is, it's child abuse basically is what it is. Mm. But the film kind of says, look, you know, you, you get this initial first sort of front at the beginning of the older kids picking on the younger kids. But then over the time, and you've got like it is revealed that that Affleck is this is the driver of this, and he gets his comeuppance. Whereas all the other characters who still participate in the rituals and rites of the teenage years. You dig a deeper, and you start to see that the beyond that, that there is a lot less of this hard and fast lines of old kids, young kids, and sort of the movie of Mitch's character as he starts to bond with the older kids and be part of that scene as well. I think the film is working to pull back that curtain a little bit, um, and I think yes, the film can be a bit. I suppose the early stuff can be a bit. I don't know, madcap. I, I'd say. Um, and, and I much prefer the later stuff where you, I mean, even look at, you know, Linklater's career where he moved towards the sort of the before trilogy and things like that, where it's a lot more actionless, I suppose, and just talking and chatting. And that stuff that comes later in the film. I prefer that to the opening section, certainly. But I think that has to set it up as, like, you go in thinking this is what it is and it breaks down. I mean, Linklater's gone on record. He's, he's trying, he's almost trying to make the anti John Hughes film. Like, he's reacting to Breakfast Club. And the idea of these clear-cut cliques, he he so he starts it off by kind of being much more traditional in that kind of high school movie thing, and then takes you somewhere through his through the editing and through the acting and through the style of the film to somewhere else entirely at the end, where the divisions just aren't there. Yeah, I too have to say I I much prefer the second half of the first half. I think from that moment that. Ben Affleck mm. gets his comeuppance. I think from then on, I much prefer the film. And maybe it's because of that, it's because of the way that this become definitely an anti-John Hughes film set in the second half. I will say, having my... Well, I'm not sure about how I'm being, being one round by Rob, but 
I will say that something I did love about this film is the look of it, mm. the feel, of it, the sound of it as well. The soundtrack is amazing, mm. and the way that it's so faithful to—I mean, talking about Aerosmith on tour and adverts for the Family plot at the cinema, and it's, it's interesting to see a 1976 film that we have um, talked about in the podcast come up. But yeah, just just so much about the setting is so very authentic. Mm. Um, although one thing I wanted to take a little bit of issue with was just how absent from this film race is mm. at a time when 1993 race particularly important, um, late 80s, early 90s sort of things that Spike Lee might have been reacting to. And then it's a film about 1976, a high-pointed right racial tension mm. in the year, or one, one of many. And I just think that there wasn't enough said about it, either within the film or externally by Linklater. I can see what you're saying. I mean, it's... I mean, I don't know what a uh, 1970s Texas town was like in terms of its race relations. Um, but I, I, I do agree. I think... The other thing I would say, I think the film badly serves its female characters. Um, I know there was more certainly written for the uh, the other um, junior high kid who um, sort of started hanging out with, with the older kids, uh, Sabrina. And, and more shot for her, that was cut. So I know there was more there. I do think the film kind of ended up fucking on Mitch mostly rather than the other characters. But I, I think I, 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 I would agree with those points i think you're right when you talk about the sort of the feel of the film i think that the one thing i really liked in this is about the feel of a real lived-in world the film moves from different locations from rec centers to garage parking lots to the moon tower and to the school and it feels like it feels like a real place without being like well this is next to this and this is next to that it hasn't got that feeling of having like you know where every building is but it feels whole in a way that breakfast club by its design, obviously, is kind of hyper-focused. It's more of a play, in many ways, than anything else. Mm. This feels like these people are moving through a world that exists without them. Um, yeah. Where and that's, this often can be a not a criticism, but a, a comment on a lot of films is that the film the film world exists solely to serve the characters we're looking at, um, and. This film doesn't. This film films like you're dropping in and the camera could actually just randomly wander someone else and there'd be an equally interesting story going on with another bunch of kids just around the corner. And I really yeah. like that. I like that. I like that feeling that you get not lost into a world, but the film pulls you in and the film establishes that kind of multi-textured, multi-layered world in which characters do meet each other, especially in a small town. Like even like you and I grew up in Reading, which is not a small town, it's a big town. You'd go out for the night and you'd bump people you knew. There'd always be an interaction between someone you knew somewhere. And this thing, film, I think, captures that in which you do not move between circles, but you do overlap circles and you'll go to the bar and there'll be someone that you know. And you may not know them very well, but you say a nod and hello. And you kind of get that feeling that these kids are living in a real world. Um, I think the film serves the and also, there, there's something about, um, from what you're saying, there's something about the that experience of when you grow up 
the moment that you realise you are not you are an adult, but say fourteen, you've you've you're coming into a new world, going from junior high to mm. high school, and you suddenly realise the town is huge, and you're only a very small part of that. So rather than thinking, okay, I I know I've got a very closed view of where I belong, so the interior of my house and school and friends' houses and all that, and suddenly this whole world opens mm. up to you. I think that's what the film does. It opens up this idea of what it's like to be a teenager. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it also speaks to the power of ritual. And I think that this is a much larger conversation um, that is for a far smarter people than me, maybe Sam. Um, but the idea of coming-of-age rituals have often been lost from our society these days. That you'd pass through something. Obviously, there are bar mitzvahs and there are Christian, there are confirmation, there are religious ceremonies about coming of age. But as so a, a secular society, beyond in theory going to the pub for the first time when you're into eighteen, which almost everyone's been to pub at some point already, we have lost this sense of ritual of becoming, of of coming of age ritual, and, they, and that's why I like this movie is that for the good of the sort of the evening sessions and going having a beer and getting your first kiss and the bad of the hazing, it is about that transitional period. It is about that transformative period and the transformative power of ritual and of something a, a rite of passage that everyone goes through and. Yes, that film, despite praising its reality at the start, the film kind of condenses it all into one night of having your first beer and staying out till midnight and having your first kiss and all in one evening. But they do stack up as rites of passage. And I like a film that can codify and celebrate that in a way that still feels real. You know, so many movies, and we aren't going to touch all of them, but things like, like, like Superbad, uh, which is a very successful teen movie. A similar vain also in one night it feels forced the amount of things that happen in that evening you know it's it's the it's overly forced the sort of the getting your first kiss getting your all that sort of stuff here like the fight that happens a it's short and quite brutal but real like it feels like it's come from somewhere and you feel like all these things have been earned in a way that other films just can go well now they have a fight or, or now they just kiss a girl and like the the interactions of the relationships that form feel kind of natural but it still hits all those beats of a right to passage movie. I love what you're saying about rituals there, and it's no coincidence that you mentioned Bar Mitzvah or Bat Mitzvah because that is a moment, a coming of age moment around sort of 12, 13, 14, and this is what mm. you get here. It feels like the I mean, the, the 1976 coming of age is, is sort of very markedly different from other religious rituals, but it's the same sort of thing. And although, yeah, yes, yes, you're right, this is child abuse, and that's what puts me off at the beginning of this film, and that's what I feel quite uncomfortable about. At the same time, what it's doing is showing you the showing you the rite of passage that is fulfilled at the end of the mm. film. So it is actually serving a purpose there. So Sam, as you weren't the most in favour of the movie, but I think I've talked around a little bit, do you have other, other really things to recommend yeah. for us? 
Yes. Um, I have two things to recommend. Um, one is, well, it's, it's two of the actors involved teamed up on a film 19 years later, directed by one of them. Um, it's Ben Affleck and Rory Cochrane in the Ben Affleck-directed film Argo, which I saw when it came out in my favourite cinema screen, which is just, for some reason, in the middle of this huge, sprawling cinema complex. It's just a tiny screen for, like, 20 people. Like, a huge cinema-sized screen, but with only 10, 20 seats. It's brilliant. Um, and I found it by accident for this film, Argo, and it was, it was, it's a great film anyway, but it was a great place to watch it. Um, my second recommendation is Adam Goldberg, who has been in many other things, including a film which, uh, which I enjoyed called A Beautiful Mind. Ron Howard, a bit up and down in his career, some of the films are absolutely amazing, some aren't. And I suppose, similarly, Russell Crowe. Um, but they came together in this one, and I thought it was a very well-made film, really enjoyable, um, about the mathematician John Nash. If you haven't seen it, it's worth seeking out. Well, I think, I feel like everyone saw it mm. 18 years ago. Um, so, yeah, two films, Argo and A Beautiful Mind. Excellent, excellent. I've got two three recommendations that i'm gonna go with um my first one's a very short one uh rory cochrane who plays uh one of the stoners in this movie is in one of my favorite films of all time empire records i've waxed lyrical about it many times on this show if you haven't seen it you really should it is very different in style but equally focused on rites of passage and teenage years my real recommendations um, a lot I've got four my other short one is I've mentioned it a few times in this show guys uh, the, nine, the 2010 film The Myth of the Mega Sleep River we did watch it and cover it back in season one of the show so we'll put some links in the show notes for that but if you like this and you really really do enjoy Days Confused this is very much in the same vein I won't do any more than that listen to the episode my two re-recommendations we talked a lot about the feel of this film and the way the camera moves and dops in and out. And a large part of that, I think, was to the editor. The editor, um, Sandra Adair, who's worked with Linklater on a lot of things. And one of uh, Linklater's films that isn't often talked about, and we haven't talked about it certainly, is his film from 2006, A Scanner Darkly. Based on the Philip K. Dick novel uh, called A Scanner Darkly, it is a very strange movie in that it is kind of cell-painted animation over live action. It's a sort of cyberpunky, futuristic sci-fi movie. Um, and it kind of came out and was a bit of a curiosity for a lot of time. But kind of after a while, the st- I believe the style of it has kind of faded out of being used and it's kind of been forgotten. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the style. I thought it was doing something interesting with that style and using that style as part of the narrative rather than just to be adaptation of of, uh, of Mission Sense. So if you haven't seen it scanned darkly and a lot of people haven't, I would recommend it heartily. My second recommendation is not a movie, it's a TV series. We have spoken about Tony and Mike, the sort of the two, shall we say, commentators 
who sort of walked through the film, noting about what's going on and interacting with him. And Tony was played by an actor called Anthony Rapp, who's been in a lot of things over the years, a lot of stage, a lot of theatre, a lot of movies. But he's also popped up recently as uh, one of the characters in Star Trek Discovery, the recent, the recent-ish um, um, Star Trek show that's popped up. I think it's on Netflix over here. Um, but it's certainly via CBS, if not... It's very different kind of Star Trek, but I really like it, and I really like his character within it. I think he is bringing some depth and some interesting stuff to Star Trek that hasn't been there before. If you haven't seen it and you have any passing interest in Star Trek or science fiction, it's well worth a watch. It feels weird to recommend two sci-fi shows off the back of this week's movie, because obviously it's so anti-sci-fi it's the opposite to science fiction um but that's where i am guys and that's it so that's it for our episode on basic infused we're continuing with our um high school american high school odyssey um into next week's film which is the 1996 film the craft not another film which i thought it was and it turns out i haven't seen it so i'll be looking forward to seeing that for the first time I understand you haven't seen it either. I haven't. It's one of those ones that just kind of missed me by in my teenage years. Um, And I've never gone back to revisit it. It's kind of a blind spot for me. So I am looking forward to catching up on this movie that is, in many ways, a staple of a lot of people's experience from teenage years. Good. Till then, guys, you can find both of us online on Twitter at Precious Podcast. You can find just me at life underscore academic. And you can find just me at Kaiju FM. And we're back here in two weeks' times with The Craft.